Good morning. Well, I'd like to welcome you to Seabreeze. I'm glad that you've joined us. Uh, like Elliot said, my name is Andrew, and I'm the youth pastor here. And I'm really excited to continue our series that we're going through called Peeled. And in this series, we're answering the question, if our lives were to be peeled back like a fruit, what would we find hidden under the surface? Would it be good fruit? Would it be bad fruit? Would it be sweet or sour? And we've been looking specifically at some pretty famous fruit from the New Testament. We find that in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, and it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So today, we're looking at peace. And I've always been a tinkerer. Uh, It's something that I've grown up doing. There's something immensely satisfying to me uh, of finding something that's broken, learning how it works, and then fixing it with my own hands. And so that's actually how all of my hobbies have started. Well, they actually started because I usually wanted something I couldn't afford, and I thought, you know, I could probably build it. Uh, And so when I moved here, I I realized the weather's perfect, and I was reminded of my love for motorcycles. And, you know, Knowing my budget, which was zero dollars, I just prayed and said, hey, God, it would be really cool if I could get a motorcycle. It would be fun for me. And a few uh, months ago, I actually got the opportunity to get one for free from a guy on Craigslist. And you'll see why it was free. (laughs) So it's been sitting in a desert since 1990. Um, That had something to do with the price, but I'm not complaining. It's fun for me. So whenever time allows, I I go down into the garage, I put on my headphones, and I listen to a book, and, and it's usually something I need to study. Maybe it's a, a really good book, but it's, it's awesome for me. I really enjoy it. I get to work with my hands, fix something that's broken, and a few weeks ago, I was downstairs in the garage. I was planning on spending a couple of hours just listening to a, a good book, and I had just gotten into the zone, uh, you know, when my family came downstairs unexpectedly, and I have a five-year-old daughter a three-year-old daughter and a one, almost two-year-old daughter, and they're adorable. Uh, I love my family. They came down, and I didn't expect it, and so my oasis was, was interrupted by my youngest daughter. You know, she was wandering around trying to find tools or rusty parts to put in her mouth, and so for me, that, that really frustrated me because it was unexpected, so I, I was short with my wife. On the outside, I was short, and then on the inside, I was just really frustrated. All sense of peace for me had been lost. But what had happened? Uh, Moments earlier, I would have said I was at peace, but all I ended up with was relational damage and discord that needed to be fixed. And as you can imagine, the rest of my time in the garage wasn't very peaceful. Um, The the whole time, just knowing that I needed to go clear up my relationship with my wife. And so I I did that. I went and asked her forgiveness for my terrible attitude. Uh, And it left me with a question. The whole experience really made me question, what is peace? And how do you know if you're experiencing the peace that comes from God or some counterfeit? And that's what we're looking at today. But I thought it'd be fun to start off with some some iconic pictures from our culture that what we would probably think of whenever we talk about peace. And so here's the first one. It's hippies. It's fun. Um, What an iconic image of peace in our society. You know, in in the 60s and 70s, the hippie movement protested the Vietnam War And they promoted peace through free love, drug use, and handing out flowers. Um, Here's another one. Growing up, for me, in Oklahoma, uh, we weren't anywhere near a beach, so I always imagined relaxing at the beach was really where peace happened. Uh, It's it's not something I got to experience 
very much, but maybe you have your own location. Feel free to fill that in. That was mine. And then before I became a youth pastor here, actually before I I moved, I was a a stockbroker at one of the big four brokerage firms here in the U.S., and it introduced me to another thing that I think our culture tries to derive its sense of peace from, and and that's retirement accounts. Um, And when I think about my experience there at the brokerage firm, speaking with lots of clients, I always think of this one guy. He comes to mind often. He was a 90-year-old man. He would call in pretty much every day. He'd make the rounds talking to different brokers. And he'd always ask how his investments were doing, and you know, you'd chit-chat, and you always got the sense that he just wasn't at peace. And it was really confusing because the account we were talking about had over $80 million in it. You know, I mean, if you think if anyone had a right to have peace based on what the, the culture says gives us peace, it has to be the guy with $80 million. And that really begs the question, is peace something like retirement that you work and invest towards for 40 years or more that you might get to enjoy for 20? For my wife and I, peace actually, uh, for us, it looks like this. It's a picture of our, our daughters asleep. <laughs> you know, the kids are finally asleep. They're adorable. We love them. We finally have peace and quiet. You know, those two hours where I can spend, uh, you know, watching Jeopardy with my wife or reading a book or maybe fall asleep on accident on the couch, I mean, they're great, but surely uh, there's more to peace than that. I mean, there has to be more. It can't just be something I work a whole day for to maybe enjoy for a few hours at night. And the problem with these different cultural ideas that, that we have of peace is that the peace that they're trying to offer is circumstantial. It's dependent on the right set of parameters, but we need to understand that true peace isn't passive. It doesn't just happen to you. It's, it's not a, an accident. If you think about it, the hippie movement died out after the war. There was really nothing to keep it going. A beautiful day at the beach can be ruined by a few rain clouds, and, and retirement accounts rise and fall with the tides of the market. And all it takes for my wife and I to have a, a, our peaceful evening ruined is for one of our kids to have a nightmare or for a fever to happen. And with three little girls, that happens more than you'd think. So passive peace, it, it really is fleeting. A true peace that comes from God isn't determined by our circumstances or by our surroundings. It isn't fragile or out of our grasp somehow because it's built on the unshakable goodness of God. So I want to give you the definition of peace that we'll be working with today, and that's this. Peace is a sense of calm that rests on the unchanging goodness of God. If you wait for personal peace, or you're hoping to attain it somehow in the future, you're actually missing real peace that you can have right now. So today, what I wanted to do was, I want to take a look at two active roles that we all have when it comes to peace. The first role you'll see is this, we must accept peace. The writer Paul, uh, to a church in Rome, said this in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. From what we can see here is that in order for us to have peace, we must first be justified. In fact, it's actually a prerequisite to peace. Peace with God actually follows being justified. And the word justified here, it's actually more of a legal term, and it means to things at the same time. It has two simultaneous meanings. The the first one is that it means to be declared not guilty. And the second meaning it has at the same time is to be declared right with God. But what does it take to be justified and actually begin to live a life of peace? Well, luckily that question is answered a few verses later. 
Thankfully, Paul knew, and he wanted to answer that question. And in verse 10, in the book of Romans, chapter 5, it says this, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So the source of the kind of peace we're talking about is God himself. So we can't actually experience true peace without first being reconciled with the one that gives it. And reconciled here, it means to remove hostility. And so this is where the journey of peace begins. As a people, we're actually naturally at war with God. You might be asking yourself when you officially declared war on God, but the, the simple answer is this. It's every time that you sin, every wrong action, wrong thought, or wrong motive in your life declares to God that, that you're his enemies, that we're his enemies. And, and this is because ultimately sin is rebellion against God. Not the entertaining kind of rebellion where an evil dictator is overthrown by a quirky band of unlikely heroes, but it's, it's personal rebellion against the greatest and most compassionate leader that the world has ever known. God is the loving ruler of the world, and he's actually created all things, and he's given us a place to rule under him. When we sin, I like to think of it as mutiny on a ship. The captain is given direct orders, but in our arrogance... We have decided that his direction is wrong. We rise up and steer the ship in a completely different direction that we think is best. That's really what sin communicates to God. So there, there are some people who openly rebel and make it pretty obvious. But honestly, most of us approach sin a little bit differently. Uh, a lot of times we'll, we'll go up to the captain, he'll give us the orders, and we'll, as nice as possible, say, you know, I totally understand that direction, why you would want to do that. But in my special circumstance, you know, I really think that this is best, and I'm going to do that. And then we smile and go our own way. Some of us will say, yes, sir, but we'll just not do what we know is right. But whether it's obvious or subtle, we are all guilty of mutiny that's caused by sin. So one of my daughters, she's adorable. Um, she, she likes to put off going to sleep by asking lots of questions. She likes to, to try to strike up a conversation before bed. And, you know, it, it's, it's adorable, but the reality is she needs to go to sleep. That's what's best for her. And so my wife and I instituted a rule that's like, hey, once the lights go out, once the doors close, it's just, it's time for bed. You can't ask questions. Please don't get up. And so that's not what she wants. So she is smart and she thinks she's being less obvious. But a few weeks ago, she actually convinced her sister to, to go outside and ask questions for her. You know, like, <laughs> like she thought it was less obvious. And, you know, you it's still being disobedient. And so with that, she still was trying to go her own way, trying to be less obvious. And we do the same thing with our sin. And, and for that reason, sin is much more than just an oops or a mistake. It's willful disobedience to the king of the universe. The wrong we commit leads us into a life of little peace and gives us turmoil that continues until we ultimately leave this earth and scripture is clear that without Jesus, the result of, of a life of sin apart from God leads to physical and spiritual death. We as a people are in a bad way, but we continue to reject God thinking that our way is somehow better. God, however, was not satisfied with this raging war that our rebellion caused. In fact, he mounted the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. He sent his son, Jesus, to live a life without sin and then die at the hands of his enemies to pay for their sins. 
and then rose to life showing he had fulfilled the terms of peace. I mean, those were our sins that he bore to make a way for peace. And you accept his offer by first trusting in what Jesus has done on your behalf. This gives God his rightful place back in your life, and the relationship is then restored. Now, he is the one who leads and directs your life. We're not chasing a a temporary feeling of calm, but we're looking for a peace that actually transcends circumstance and difficulty. And that kind of peace, honestly, it's, it's costly. And the greatest gesture of love, though, God has extended a free offer to us, and we need to accept his terms of peace. When you do, you'll actually have taken the first step towards true peace that you can have for a lifetime and beyond. So from that point, whenever you make the decision to follow Christ, you are justified. You're, you're declared not guilty of your sin, and at the same time, you're made right with God based on what Christ has done. God sends his spirit to live inside of you to help you grow And in this series, we're actually talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Specifically, those are the fruit that grow in our lives. Those are the characteristics that grow in our lives because of the work of His Spirit on the inside. And God's peace just won't grow unless you first accept His offer of peace. When you make that decision, though, the future changes forever for the better. Where you were once powerless to attain peace, by the help of His Spirit, you now have the ability to fight for it. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, I've actually made a decision to follow Christ. Like, I I know I'm forgiven, and I have a relationship with God, but but how does that translate into a practical experience every day? How can I have peace today? And I I, I understand that question because I ask that. We all ask the question, how do I deal with the turmoil that's on the inside? How do I have peace whenever I'm worried or anxious or I'm angry? And that's where most of us live and struggle on a day-to-day basis. But peace is a sense of calm that rests on the unchanging goodness of God. We're going to look at Isaiah 26.3. This peace is described here by, by the writer. Speaking of God, he says this, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And the word steadfast here literally means to, to prop up. And just like the motorcycle that, that's propped up on a kickstand in my garage, Um, The image we get here of a steadfast mind is one that's propped up by God. So so if my motorcycle's kickstand was made out of cardboard, it would not handle the weight of the 500-pound motorcycle. It would would crumble, but instead, the kickstand is built with steel, and it's able to, to withstand the full weight. And in the same way, God is the only one who's able to support the weight of our worry in the face of life's uncertainties. We must train ourselves by the help of His Holy Spirit, to bring our minds back to that truth as often as our sense of peace leaves us when we worry, when we're anxious, when we're upset. It's because our measure of peace is not based on our ability to control our circumstances, but it's based on the reliability of what we're trusting in. So I want to ask you a few questions. Are you trusting in the amount of money that you have saved? Are you living for retirement Or the time you have between when your kids fall asleep and when you do. That's the one that comes up often for me. Or are you trusting the one who never changes and always works good in your life? The things that compete with God for our support, they crumble under the weight of a lifetime of uncertainty and difficulty. It can't sustain under the pressure that life brings. And as a father, honestly, I have a deep desire to see my three girls grow up to be women that that love God and value their relationship with him more than anything else in the world. 
And as a father, as a leader of my family, God has given me a huge role as an influencer in their lives, and I don't take that lightly. In fact, my wife and I, we've already dedicated that we're going to spend, you know, countless hours and years of our lives training our kids to, to know what it means to walk with God and to, to know who he is. But my sense of calm as a dad, it leaves as soon as I begin to think about my ability to actually influence their future, when I start to, to trust in my own ability because I realize that in the end, I, I don't have the ability to control the outcome of their lives. And when I have these thoughts and I, I lose my sense of calm that comes from God, what I need to do is catch those thoughts as quickly as possible and replace them with the truth because I know that if I think about who's in, uh, the fact that I'm not in control and, and I, I'm not able to control the outcome of their, their life, I begin to, to really get worried. And I realize that that will ultimately leave me to be passive. But what I need to do is actively, actively replace those thoughts with the truth about who is in control. That's, that's what I need to do as a dad. And typically for me, that's either replacing those thoughts with a, a really good memory of God's goodness to me or my family in the past, or with a verse that I've memorized from the Bible. So one of the thoughts that I use frequently, especially when, when worried about my kids and their futures, the, the, the memory of when my daughter decided to make Jesus the boss of her life. She decided to, to live for, for Christ and and that was a huge day for me and my wife. You know, we've been praying for years, pretty much every day for her life, that she would make that decision and, and walk with God. And I also wanted to share with you guys a verse that has been really helpful for me as I go through some different tough spots that really brings my mind back to, to my role in this whole thing. And this is, comes from Psalm 84, 11 and 12. And it says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And this verse brings me back to my role. It's to walk forward doing what is right with God, believing that he will return good to me in, in only a way that he can. You know, honestly, hard stuff is still hard. But as we choose to return our thoughts to how good God is, our hearts, they can calm. And there's a sturdiness of our heart that, that's formed as we continually commit to, to return our thoughts toward God and trust in his character. When you become anxious about work, about your kids or a relationship, my question for you is how quickly do you turn your thoughts back to the goodness of God? Well, when worry or anger do hit, I encourage you to remember that if you have trust in Christ, ultimately you have peace with God, that that relationship is restored, he's directing your life, and he can be trusted. And also, I'd encourage you to remember that he's the only one you can rest the future on. As often as you find your sense of peace interrupted, you should do that. And so we've, we've now looked at the first role we have with peace, and that's to accept it. So we're going to begin looking at the next role, the second role we have with peace, and that's that we are called to make peace. So we're transitioning now from our relationship with God to our relationship with people. And I like to think of this as a vertical and a horizontal plane. The, the vertical plane represents our relationship with God, the peace that we have with God. And the horizontal plane represents the peace we have with other people. And that's basically what our peace with God causes us to do in our relationship with others. And so we're going to look at that peace. 
when Jesus began his public ministry, he gave such an important message that it took three chapters in the book of Matthew. That's over 10% of the book. And this idea of being a person that creates peace in their relationships was so important to Jesus that he, he mentioned it at the beginning. If you haven't read this section of Matthew at the very beginning, Jesus just lists a bunch of characteristics that reveal what a godly person looks like. And in Matthew 5, verse 9, he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So why would a peacemaker be called a child of God? I've, I've thought about that question, and then I realized, when my parents visit, I get told often that I look just like my dad. In the same way, those of us that are God's kids should also bear the family resemblance with him. So just as God is pursuing peace with us and with other people, we need to be about what he's about. We need to pursue peace with other people as well. And then there are really two broad categories that we can put pursuing peace in. So there are two ways that we pursue peace. The first is by seeking to have right relationships with people. In Romans 12, 18, it says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So we see the goal here. It's pretty, it's pretty obvious. Live at peace with everyone. Not just the people that we like or that like us or the people that help us, but everyone. And we see that there's also a caveat here. It says, as far as it depends on you. So we all understand, I think pretty naturally, that it's not possible for everyone to like us or for each decision that we make to be universally accepted or agreed upon. I mean, that'd be really nice. But that doesn't give us an excuse to treat other people poorly. We're called by God to treat others as he would treat them, doing right towards them in our thoughts and in our actions as we pursue peace. Now, Many of you are probably like me, and we, we say something out of frustration or anger or jest and do damage. And, and that's either done by hurting someone's feelings or by setting a bad example. If the damage is ignored, we have actually misrepresented our father and left someone thinking that God is somehow okay with treating other people poorly. Because of that, we actually need to seek people out that we have wronged quickly. We need to ask their forgiveness and then do what needs to be done to make things right in that relationship. Anytime I think about clearing up relationships with other people, I'm reminded of a few times whenever I was in finance. And, and there's this one time in particular that I wanted to share. We, we were, me and a few guys were standing around the water cooler, you know, just talking about life. And then all of a sudden, they began to, to make jokes about our manager and I joined in on those jokes and just kind of poking fun. And then as soon as we split up, and I was headed back to my desk, I realized, oh, man, I really blew it. I, I, need to, I need to go clear this up with them. I need to ask their forgiveness. And, and I did. And I just want you to know, it's really awkward when people don't have any idea why you're asking forgiveness or what that means. Like to go to them and say, hey, whenever I said that, it was wrong. But I wanted to clear up that relationship because I know how important to God it is that we, we really try to live at peace with people. And I also didn't want them to think that God was somehow okay with disrespecting another person. And I didn't want to create a barrier to them someday maybe coming to know Jesus. Because not only does damaging relationships misrepresent him, it also makes the second part of how we pursue peace almost impossible. The second part is we also pursue peace by helping others know that God has offered them peace. We tell them about what Jesus has done so that they can possibly come to know him, that he died for their sins and they can have a real relationship with God. And in fact, we see this model by Jesus. He, 
he, he told others about the peace that God offers. Writing about Jesus, we see in Ephesians 2.17, it says this, He came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. So this is actually something that is really important to God. Now, my wife and I, we moved here from Fort Worth, Texas. And it's not a bad-looking town by any means. You can see there. Uh, but on the surface, I mean, Huntington Beach looks so much better. Am I right? <laughs> Huntington Beach has a beach. Texas had a rodeo. You know, it's, it's just different. And that's okay. But while we're out and about here, families, you know, they put on a happy face. There, there's joking um, and there's smiling, or at least there usually aren't people yelling at each other. But it's when we enter our homes that's where the mask really comes off, and that's where the conflict arises. And, and living in an apartment, you guys know how this is. When it's the summer and the windows are open, you accidentally hear other people's conversations. It's not on purpose, but it's how it is. And this was actually, personally, a big adjustment for me when my, first, when my family first moved out here 10 months ago. And I'll never forget some of the conversations I've heard from the people around me. They, they honestly broke my heart. And I think about the first time that I realized that other people around here were broken and that you could just hear everything. It was, it was my first real culture shock. It was a few days after my wife and I had moved in and our windows were open. We were woken up at two in the morning by a, a couple of neighbors across the street that we don't know. They were, they were upset at each other, yelling, and one of them made threats um, about breaking their windows found out a few days later they weren't just idle threats. The police were called. It was, it was a, a big culture shock. I had never heard something like that from just people on the street. And, and you have all experienced probably something similar. This isn't a one-time thing. We, we hear lots of different conversations around us. But some of these different experiences that I had really came at a helpful time for me personally. With the beach and the beauty here and, and the people kind of putting on a happy face because they're vacationing here. I didn't see on the surface really that people were broken, and I became really concerned. I, I was starting to wonder if people here were actually broken, like I'd experienced everywhere else. Everywhere else people were broken. Uh, and after getting a glimpse into the real life of people here by accidentally hearing their conversations, it, it really did break my heart because the truth is, just like we needed to receive God's offer of peace, and accept it, those around us desperately need the same thing. We, we really do live in a broken place that needs to hear what Christ has done for them. And as Paul wrote to a group of Christians at a church in the town of Ephesus, he actually wrote about the armor that they would need to put on in order to stand firm in a broken environment, kind of like our own. Ephesians 6, 13 through 15 says this, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So armor is worn in a battle, and this passage caused me to really wonder, if the sandals are from the gospel of peace, why are, why are they on battle armor? What this suggests is that each one of us actually needs to be ready to extend God's offer of peace to others. And as people who are taking orders from God, this actually might lead us into places that don't feel very peaceful. The reality is we are in the middle of a spiritual war that's going on. We, we can't see it, but ultimately one day God will wrap up history and we will join him. But while we're still here on earth 
in the middle of the battle, we, we need to be ready. This needs to be something we're prepared for. However, after we have made peace with God, a lot of us, I think most of us, have a tendency really to get comfortable. I mean, you may have spent most of your life as an enemy of God, but uh, then you finally accepted his offer of peace. But no matter how long it's been, we all know how easy it is to forget what life was like before we walked with God. But in order to join our Father in his effort to make peace with the world, we might find ourselves in places that just aren't very comfortable, that are outside of our comfort zones, maybe talking to people that are different than us or, or living in places we, we didn't expect. So as we grow and experience transformation, we actually see the results of that transformation in our relationships. And as we build a track record of walking with God and experiencing the peace that rests on his unchanging goodness, it's only natural that we want other people to experience that same thing. We want them to know what true peace is by knowing God. So in this series, we're looking at the different fruits that the Holy Spirit grows in our life. And so my question for you is, is this. As you partner with the Holy Spirit to grow peace in your life, what area do you need to work on? Do you need to make peace with God yourself by surrendering and accepting his offer of peace? Or are there steps that you need to take to make peace with someone else that, that you need to repair a relationship with? Are there men and women that you know that need to hear that God has offered them peace as well? You know, I'd encourage you to think about one thing you can do this week to begin moving more towards peace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for extending an offer of peace, God, in your love and kindness towards us. That you, you wanted a relationship with us, so, so Jesus came to, to live a perfect life, die for our sins, and then come back to life, showing that you had approved that sacrifice, that we can know you. God, I pray that this week we will all take steps to grow in peace with other people, God, or, or whatever area you're speaking to each one of us as, as we try to move forward, Father, so that your name would be honored in, in our relationships and through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.